Our Father, we are so thankful that through your Son, Jesus Christ, this is a special time of year. We recognize that much of the nation in which we live recognizes Christmas, but they do not really recognize the true meaning of Christmas. Even though it's wonderful to hear uh, Christian music in stores, many of those who hear it don't acknowledge it as Christian music, but simply as Christmas music. But Lord, to us, it is joy that to the world the Lord has come and that you have brought to us life and hope and redemption. And as we focus on the first book of Scripture, we pray that you will continue to illumine our minds and give us understanding and application that the truths that we read here will be applied to us even though we live 4,000 years after the events described because we know, Lord, that you are the eternal one, the one whose word is forever settled in heaven, unchanging and always applicable at every uh, point in history. And so we submit to your authority today. Pray for those who are not with us this morning for illness or other reason that you will minister to them specifically. In Christ's name, amen. By the way, Norma has copies. If any of you don't have a copy of the outline or the map, you just raise your hand and she'll get you one. If you'll turn to the 34th chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 34. This isn't exactly a Christmas theme, but we're continuing on uh, in our study through Genesis here. It is interesting to note that uh, actually, as you study through the Scripture, every theme in Scripture somehow relates to Christmas. Because whether it be an example of the majesty and the power and the, and the loving kindness of God, or if it be an example of the depravity of mankind, the reality of the Savior is central to it all. So I'd like to read the first four verses here of Genesis chapter 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he lay with her, he took her and lay with her by force. And he was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this young girl for a wife. In the previous chapter, we saw the move of Jacob and his family to Shechem. They had had several encounters across on the other side of the Jordan River in what today we know as, know as Gilead. They had lived for a period of time just across the Jordan River at a place called Succoth. And there the scripture told us that uh, Jacob had built booths or sheds to shelter his animals and also a house for himself and his family. But after a period of several months there, he moved across the Jordan River, probably fording at uh, Adam, just north of where the Jabbok uh, has its confluence with the Jordan River. And then he, once he crossed, he moved to the northwest and up through the Wadi Faria, which is the primary reasonable access to the highlands from that portion of the Jordan Valley. Again, reminding us that where he crossed the Jordan was probably a thousand feet below sea level. 
And as he came up through the Wadi Faria, he was rising to a level that was in excess of 2,000 feet above sea level. So this 3,000 foot climb uh, had to take place. And as he reached the ridge route, where the Wadi Faria sort of empties out to, to the top of the ridge, he made a left-hand turn, turned southward, and now we have him at Shechem. At the end of the previous chapter, we're told that he bought a piece of property there at Shechem, and he settled down at this particular juncture. There's a lot of similarity at this moment between Jacob and Lot. Like Lot before him, Jacob brought a great deal of pain into his life by choosing to live right next to a pagan city. Now we must sort of picture the situation here. Shechem wasn't a particularly large town, probably only had a population of a few hundred. And what we're talking about is actually a city-state. Uh, Canaan was not a unified country in that uh, period of time. It was a land that was sort of the crossroads between Mesopotamia and the Egyptian River Valley and the great civilizations in those two centers. And from time to time, one of those civilizations would extend its power over Canaan, and Canaan would become a part of the hegemony of either Mesopotamia or Egypt. In, in the transition times, it was largely divided into a series of petty uh, city-states. And so Shechem would have been one of these small city-states. Now, we know from the scripture that we have read previously that God had promised that he would be with Jacob. Wherever Jacob went, God would be with him. Just as God is with you and with me if we're true believers, wherever we might go, God is with us. And sometimes that's a good thing to remember where we may be tempted to go somewhere that uh, maybe God doesn't really want to go. I, I mean, obviously God is everywhere, but in the, in the sense of go with us. But in this situation, it seems a little bit foolish on Jacob's part to subject his family to worldly temptations and dangers unnecessarily. Obviously, God does not want you or me or Jacob or his family or any of those who are his people to avoid the world by becoming hermits, by putting ourselves in some monastery in the top of a mountain and, and just trying to forget the world and, and live apart from it. Those of you who are familiar with uh, medieval Europe know that there was a monastery or a group of monasteries established by an order known as the Cistercians. And it was their object to build their monasteries as, in as remote a place as they could find. So they built them on mountaintops in the depths of forests so that they could get away from the world. Be separate, right? Come out from among them and be separate. So they separated themselves as far as they could from society. Of course, you have in that medieval world also the opposite kind of attitude uh, amongst the Franciscans and the Dominicans who were established in the early 13th century by St. Francis and St. Dominic, whose idea was to carry the gospel out to the people. And so you have the orders which were known as friars from the French frere or brother. And uh, they went out to the world. And so you have these kind of opposite extremes uh, that existed within the framework of the same church. And it, it seems that the idea of, of being a hermit appeals to some, but it isn't really scriptural. The Bible doesn't tell us to leave the world in, in that sense. But on the other hand, 
God does not want us to purposely and unnecessarily place ourselves and our family in a place where we're subjected to the world in all of its, in all of its vileness in ways that could be detrimental. Christ has commanded us, and we've read the scripture many times, to be the light of the world. And we're told that the light is to be like a city set upon a hill, and it, it cannot be hid. And so if we're to be the light of the world, we can't go out of the world or we can't go hide behind some wall someplace because if we do, then the light is not shining, it would seem. So being cloistered is not the answer. Being uninvolved in the affairs of the world is not the answer either. But on the other hand, <laughs> sound like Tevye in, uh, in uh, Fiddler on the Roof, you know, oh, and on the other hand, you know, trying to get this thing sorted out. To be the light of the world doesn't mean we have to, without good reason, put our families and ourselves into Sodom, as Lot did. It really all depends on the clear call of God, and I mean the clear call of God when it comes to this kind of a situation. God called Abraham out of Ur. He later would call him out of Haran, and he called him to Canaan. Now, Canaan wasn't a more godly place than either Haran or Ur, but Canaan was the place to which God clearly called Abram. Isaac was called to Canaan too, and so was Jacob, because this was the land of promise. This was where the uh, covenant would be fulfilled and the covenant nation would be raised up, would be in the land of Canaan. So God called them to this pagan land, and there they were to be lights, and Abraham truly was a light. Now, God did not call Abraham to Egypt, <coughs> nor did he call him to Gerar, both places in which he got into big trouble. There is nothing in this passage that indicates in any way that God called Jacob to Shechem, or that God told Abram to set, uh, Jacob to settle here at Shechem. In fact, there's nothing in the passage to indicate he even asked God where he should go, what he should do. And from what happens here, we get a feeling that uh, maybe God really wanted him to do something else, but this was his plan, and this action is really not a whole lot better than the action of Lot, as it turns out. Too often, some of God's people spend a great deal of time in or near Vanity Fair more because they love the world than because they really desire to be a light shining in a dark place. Our motives are very, very important. Let me read that passage that you all know so well from the first epistle of John, second chapter. I find myself turning to this passage fairly often because the allure of the world is strong and we not, need not kid ourselves about it. First John, chapter 2, verse 15 very clearly says, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world, the cosmos, the world system. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts, 
but the one who does the will of God abides forever. Now, obviously, this passage is not saying, again, that we should become anchorites and go out and live in the desert. The passage is not saying that uh, we cannot love to ski or that we cannot love the beauty of this world or, or that we cannot even love the people which God has created. The passage is saying that if those things which are worldly as in opposition to the things that are godly are of great attraction to us, then that is going to do violence to our souls and, and to our spirits. If we love the things which are of the prince of the power of the air, the prince of the God of this world, if we love those things, then the love of God can't be in us. Because, as we have read in the Gospels, Christ said you cannot love God and mammon, money or anything related to that, the world system, at the same time. It's, I don't know about you, but I've run across many people who claim to be Christians and seem like they have one world in the one foot in the world and the other foot in heaven, at least in their own minds, that seems to be uh, the way they're functioning. And I have a real hard time with that. I mean, not that I'm not tempted by the things of the world. We all are. But if we're real about this, we recognize that if we are loving those things which are clearly not of God, then there's some big problem in our lives. Because when we sin, there ought to be a conviction in our spirit that we have sinned. And we really don't want to do that. We want to do the things that God wants us to do. And that, that, that's a testimony of the reality of our, of our faith and of our commitment. So if we constantly run this by our own thoughts, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, uh, this, I think, helps us to keep our vision clear as to whom we are and who we ought to be in God's plan. I'm not sure what Jacob was thinking at this time, or even if he was thinking. It's hard to tell. Jacob apparently desired the activities of the city. Again, as I mentioned last week, he had lived up near Haran, and apparently he had fairly ample opportunity to run in and out of Haran whenever he felt like it. Now, Haran was a much larger city. It was a great trade entrepot at the crossroads there of the northern portion of the Fertile Crescent, where the major trade route that came out of Egypt, uh, out of Egypt came through and connected to the major trade route down into Mesopotamia. And it could be that after living out you know, running from Laban and the encounter with Esau and living out in the boondocks, so to speak, that he just had this hankering to live next to a civilized place. And so he chose to live where the activities of city life were available, you know, where the opera could be seen and, and the orchestra could be heard and, you know, so to speak. However, in so doing, he was subjecting young children to the allure of the city that they were really not, probably not well prepared to deal with. There's a very well-known passage also in 1 Corinthians I'd like to take a moment to read. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse 11. Most of us have memorized verse 13, or many of us may have. Verse 11, Now these things happen to them as an example and they are written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the age have come. 
Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. The things that happened to Jacob are an example to us. The things that happened to Abraham are an example to us. The things that happened throughout Scripture are an example to us. We shouldn't have to learn everything the hard way. You probably have heard it if we, as we have heard from someone very dear to us. I want to find out for myself. There are those who will not take instruction. They've got to find out the hard way. They've got to hit the wall themselves rather than being told that the wall is hard and the wall can hurt. Those who think that they can stand by their own strength need to take heed. And, you know, even, even in this situation, Jacob was in danger himself, let alone his children. It's true, as it says there, that there is no temptation that's overtaking you, but it's common to man. But I, I think this verse is applicable in a situation where you're trying to walk the way that God has set before you, and when temptation comes, we can trust in God for the strength to not yield. But if we're walking over here on some cow path way off of where God has planned for us to be, we're on our own, so to speak. That's not that God isn't there, nor that God won't help. But God's going to let us knock our heads against the wall. You see this all through Scripture, don't you? God could have... Well, just think about it for a minute. We often quote David and his situation with Bathsheba. God could have made it very easy for Bathsheba to have taken a bath at a different time. It didn't have to take it at that time. Or he could have given David a headache so he went to bed. He could have done so many things. But God let David run smack into the wall because David was not walking where God wanted him to be. And I think that's a little bit of what we're seeing in this passage. I, I think Jacob is not exactly walking right smack on the path. And therefore God is allowing something to happen. That is tragic. Any of us can fall into sin. Any of us can face temptation. There's not a one of us here in this room who can walk blithely down the wrong path and expect that we will be sacrosanct, that it'll all bounce off us like water off a deck's back. When we walk through a sinful environment, we need to be walking with God hand in hand, scripture in mind, prayer on lips, that we might be faithful to him and know that it's important that we do. Jacob may have been strong enough. It could be that the allure of, of Shechem was not anything that would do him any great harm. He could probably walk the way without any problem. But what about his children? Some of his children were very young, especially the one about whom this chapter, around whom this chapter largely turns. I think the passage from the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 18 is very apropos here. It's really, really important for us, and I think most of us understand this, because 
we either are parents or hope to be or we're even grandparents or whatever, and, and we, we have come the route and we know the problems that children face, especially today. Chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. But whoever humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. And when Jesus says woe, you know we're talking about a really big matter here. Jacob is responsible for what happens to Dinah. And I think that, you know, the pain that he brings to his life, the, bring, the pain that he brings to Leah, the pain that comes to the, her brothers, her half-brothers and her brothers, really has to be placed at Jacob's doorstep because he has made the decision as where to live for a while. Scripture says, train up a child in the way that he should go. Again, we know that does not mean that we should sequester the child, even though sometimes we may be tempted to for other reasons. That we, we don't put the child away where he or she has no contact with the world because that child will never become strong, obviously, without those contacts. But on the other hand, it certainly does not mean we should just toss the child to the wolves, see if the child can beat them off. I don't think so. Notice how this uh, 34th chapter in Genesis begins. It begins with two words, now Dinah. Dinah was the seventh child born to Leah. Six boys were born and then, Le uh, then Dinah. At least that's the way it reads as you read through Genesis, the passages that we have already studied. Her name, we noted, meant judgment. Kind of a serious name to give to a young lady, when you think about that. And you, my darling, will be called judgment. <laughs> and you will be called discipline. <laughs> I, you know. we, we, we name our children usually with a little bit more euphonically uh, desirable names than that, or at least Quite often, of course, we name our children with no concept of the meaning of the word. We just like that name, you know. Uh, when we named our oldest daughter, we just happened to like that name, so we gave her the name. It, we didn't stop to think what it meant. But, of course, if you go to the Christian bookstore, you'll find almost every name has a good meaning, won't you? <laughs> Whatever the name is, it'll give you a little phrase there, and it's always good, you know. Chief, great warrior, uh, you know, man of God, woman of God. Regardless of what the name may have meant originally, <laughs> in the original language, you know. Might have been stupid or something else, you know, but hopefully not. 
But you know, this name, judgment, is very, very interesting in the light of what happens in this passage, is it not? We could say, and of course it's not that it's not possible that the name was given uh, retroactively. That's possible. Obviously, many years had passed since Jacob had left Paden Aram before the events of this passage transpire. Dinah was the seventh child of Leah, but she was the eleventh child born to Jacob. And she was born just shortly before Joseph was born, the eleventh son born to Jacob. And you remember back that right after Joseph was born was when uh, Jacob made the deal with Laban. He said, uh, you know, I've worked all these years and I have nothing to show for all this labor. I have two wives and I have a dozen kids, but I have no, nothing of this world's goods to show. And so he was talking about leaving and Laban said, look, you stay here and, uh, you know, remember the deal that was made. And for the next six years, Jacob labored there with Laban and increased his wealth as a result. Thus, Dinah, by the time they had actually settled here at Shechem, was probably eight or nine years of age. Probably right around that age. But by the time the events of this chapter transpire, she's probably at least in her middle teens, possibly even in her later teens, somewhere between probably 14 and 18 or so, maybe 19, so, somewhere in that category. So what we're talking about is uh, Jacob got hung up on the way home, you know. From Succoth, he went up to the hills and then down to Shechem, and rather than buzzing right on down to Hebron, not that he may not have made a trip on his own down there to visit his folks, but he didn't seem to bring his family in. Here he is, and, and he's at Shechem for five to ten years. That's a bit of a hang-up on the way home, you know, for this man. I think four factors may have played a major role in creating this potentially dangerous situation. First of all, Jacob's own example. Jacob was a polygamist. Jacob had four wives. This was not a particularly good example for his children. It's really hard for us, I think, and we've all come to this place of recognizing it, I hope, to, to teach our children to adhere to biblical standards that we do not adhere to ourselves. Amen. And if we fail to live up to biblical standards in one area, it really is easy to fail to live up a bib to biblical standards in another area. It seems like if our armor has one chink in it, that single, single chink can be deadly. Sort of like if you remember The Hobbit. The, the dragon smog. Just one little teeny chink in this vast armor. It was impenetrable. But all it took was that little chink. And he was dead. At least he was out of the, out of the picture here. And so, failing to live up to God's standards in this one really important area, and, and we know what God's standard was because it's given in the first chapter, in the second chapter of Genesis. 
And certainly that was transmitted on down through the centuries. Even though the law of God per se, as given to Moses on the Mount Sinai, had not yet been given, we have to always remember that God is the same. He is immutable. God is unchanging. And even though God recognized that these early people didn't really have it all together in terms of the word of God yet, as we do today, and as a, as a result, there's a scripture that tells us that he winked. That doesn't mean that their sin was okay. It simply meant God understood. And therefore, God dealt with them within that light. But there were things that they knew to be true. And Jacob knew what was true relative to this situation. And, and he knew the problem that was created when Abraham took Hagar. It was not a good scene. And yet here he is living before his children in this particular situation. And um, this creates the possibility for excuse on the part of his children. Secondly, Jacob's wives, I don't think were as wholeheartedly committed to Yahweh, Jehovah, if you will, as was Jacob himself. Remember, they come out of a pagan background. Whatever extent they knew the, knew the Lord before Jacob came, we're not told. There seems to be some acknowledgement of God within that general family, but we know that they were at least polytheists uh, because of the other events that we talked about when we went through those passages of Genesis. And so, since his wives were not as committed as he, they, the children probably did not receive strong, consistent teaching about what it meant to love the Lord your God and to obey Him. Thirdly, and this is, I think, quite important, Jacob's children were coming of age. They were arriving at the time when the hormones are flowing and the attraction of the opposite sex is becoming important to them. And the thoughts of marriage are, are not far from their minds. But the only eligible men and women around for his family are pagan Canaanites. There is nobody else. They're living in a pagan land. And all the people nearby are pagan Canaanites. So to whom do his children have to turn? And as you read later in the chapter, you discover that Hamor and Shechem urge him. He say, why don't you just become one of us and let our daughters marry your sons and your sons marry our daughters. I mean, you know, let's just do it that way and we'll all become one. And then, of course, Hamor says, uh, with a little aside there, and all their cattle will be ours. <laughs> you know, that's the pagan world. The pagan world may say, hey, you guys, we're glad to have you Christians. Come and join with us, form partnerships with us, marry with us. What they really want is your soul, whatever you have. Their concern is not for your welfare. The enemy's concern is not for our welfare. No. Uh, the enemy may have been willing to give to uh, Dr. Dr. Faust, right? He's the guy who sold his soul. May have been willing to give him the 20 years of pleasure or whatever it was, but to the enemy that was no sacrifice because he was getting what he wanted, which was the soul of this man. The only eligible men and women around in terms of a relationship was these pagan people of the city of Shechem. 
Now, Jacob knew what a problem this was because, first of all, Abraham had warned against marrying the pagans. Isaac had warned against marrying the pagans, and that's why Isaac had been a servant had been sent to bring a bride back for Isaac. And that's why Jacob went to Paden Aram, so he would marry into the family in some way. At least there'd be a leaning or an opening towards truth and towards the right way. But Jacob had also witnessed the misery that had been brought into the family when Esau married pagans. He should have been aware of the growing danger. He seems to not have been aware of the needs of his children. Then lastly, Dinah apparently had no fellowship with young women her own age. There were the mothers of all the children, and since she was the oldest sister, apparently, any younger sisters were just that, a lot younger. And she had nobody who would understand her where she was. Now, sometimes we have this idea that psychological principles that we know today only apply today, and the past people didn't have them. Well, that's, of course, silly. All through history, young men and young women have gone through the same needs and the same desires and the same problems just as they do today. And Dinah had her needs, and she needed fellowship of other young ladies, and apparently there was none within her own family. So in the first verse of this uh, chapter, we read that now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. Sort of an official visit, it seems like. Went out to fellowship with gals her age amongst the Shechemites. She desired this companionship of other young ladies. I mean, we all need companionship at whatever age we are. But it seems like in, in the so-called teen years, there's, there's a special need for it. Uh, a need for it so that a person can feel worthy of, of existence, even, it seems. And it's very possible in the process that she also was interested in being admired by the young men of the land, too. I mean, to have to consider this possibility. In fact, subconsciously, she may have even been thinking, as I guess, again, subconsciously, that maybe she could attract some suitors. However, had she been properly taught or had she had proper discretion, she would have known that it was not right for her to go out into this situation without an escort, without someone from her family going along with her. Maybe one of her big brothers who could stand there and just kind of, you know, off in the distance, of course. But, but be kind of a chaperone, or at least so that they would know someone was responsible for her not far away. She was apparently naive enough to believe that she could dangle the bait without being bitten. Which, of course, would be, if true, indicative of the fact that maybe she had not been taught about the ways of the Canaanites which Jacob certainly knew. I mean, he had lived amongst them, and as had his father, and as his, had his grandfather. He had lots of contact with the Canaanites, and knew what kind of people they were. Now, we have to remind ourselves, these Canaanites were a polytheistic people, and generally they worshipped with some kind of a blood-oriented worship. 
and generally their gods were somehow related to the uh, Phoenician Baal or Baal. Uh, it was very characteristic, and, and generally they had their deities were at least one of the deities, if not more than one, were fertility deities. And uh, these deities were responsible not for not only human fertility, but the fertility of the animals, the fertility of the soil. And, and these deities required sacrifice, which often involved ritual prostitution. And so carelessness and carefreeness about uh, sexual relationships was very common to the Canaanites. Later on, even the Romans, now think about the early Romans, they were hardly what you would call a godly people. The early Romans were as pagan as they came, but even they were disgusted at how the Phoenicians acted, sacrificing their own children to this God who would hopefully save them from the Romans. So you know, if one pagan people can be disgusted by another pagan people, that, that latter pagan people would be a pretty... Uh, undesirable lot to be associated with. But I don't think Dinah understood all those things or maybe even knew all those things. Now, it's certain she did not go out that day to get raped. This was not her desire, probably not even in her mind. She simply wanted to stir up some interest, maybe, and visit with some young ladies her age. But interest she did stir up. And from the prince of the land, the heir apparent to the throne of the city-state of Shechem, a man who himself was called Shechem after the city. The word Shechem means ridge and probably refers to the location of the city between the slopes of Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And uh, right in there where we read the passage in uh, Joshua where the children of Israel later would make their cries uh, to God as the word of God was read. Ridge. It's interesting also that uh, the father of Shechem, his name was Hamor. Now, Hamor meant male donkey. Now, in our society, that wouldn't be considered a um, particularly good name to have. You know, <laughs> because we have another word to use for that. And uh, we usually use that word in a rather derogatory way. But we have to remember that male donkeys in that society were considered to be very fine animals and very important animals. And you remember that even Jesus later on in, rode in on a colt of a donkey. And that was considered regal. And you'll read through other passages in the Old Testament which tell us that uh, even the sons of the kings rode on donkeys. And that was considered to be a very royal thing to do. So here we have this small city-state. Hamor is the king, or if you would call it, sort of like the governor of it. Uh, it's hard to use the word king, at least for me, for a little bitty city-state of only a few hundred people, but uh, that's what is often used in Scripture. And, and Shechem, his son, is the prince, the heir apparent. Now, who are these people? Well, we know them under the general title of Canaanites, but more specifically, we know them as Hivites. Now, Hivites were the descendants of Canaan also. Let's, let me just turn back for a moment to the 10th chapter of Genesis and review that. A couple of verses there. Genesis 10, verse 15. And Canaan became the father of Sidon, his firstborn, in Heth. 
And the Jebusite, the Amorite, the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Archite, the Sinite, and etc. So the Hivites were also descendants of Canaan. So in a general sense, all of these tribal groups were Canaanites, and the land became known as Canaan. But they had a specific tribal name. In this case, they were called Hivites. And they were one of several tribal groups uh, that were connected together. Probably what we're looking at is a clan, one clan within the tribe. And the main part of the tribe lived up in Lebanon. But there were a couple of clans that lived down south. And one clan lived here at Shechem. Another clan lived down at Gibeon. And they would play a big role in the Joshua narrative later on in time. The Shechemites thus were part of this general tribe known as Hivites. Now, had Shechem ever seen Dinah before? Well, the scripture doesn't say, but we would assume probably that he had. After all, they've been living there for many years. But the implication is here that this may have been the first time that Dinah went on an official visit all by herself to the ladies of the city of Shechem. Now, this may be the first time he really noticed her, sort of her coming out, if you will. Whatever the case, whether he had known about her, heard about her, seen her before, thought about her before, whatever the case was, this day when she came out, he was just overtaken by his passion for this girl. And he found her alone. She should never have been alone. But here she was, alone, within his reach and he raped her. Now there is something unusual about his actions here. In the third verse, it says that, and he was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. This really is not necessarily the way it normally happens. Often, after a violent act like this, the girl is thrown off uh, and, and the person's lust has been expended and he has no more use for her. And we read this later on when it comes to one of the sons of da David who rapes his only ha own half-sister and, and then throws her off and wants no more to do, to do with her. But not this pagan prince. He loves her. And he tries to woo her. It says he speaks tenderly to her. He found her different from the Canaanite girls, apparently. And, and he was attracted to her. I, I think it was more than just her appearance. There was something about her character and her personality that, that attracted <coughs> this young man. And although he began the courtship all wrong, he decided to follow protocol, and ask his father to arrange that he might marry this young gal. Now, what went on in this conversation when he spoke tenderly to her? How did she respond? Well, we have absolutely no indication here as to how she responded. Certainly, the violent act didn't put her in the right frame of mind. Whether she would have been attracted to him even in the first place, we have no idea. But this isn't really the focus of the passage because in those days, as in much of history, you'll find people did not marry because they loved each other. 
they had to learn to love each other after they were married because marriages were prearranged by parents or some other authority figure in the family. And for us, we, we have a hard time relating to that because we're all, our minds are all filled with Hollywood love. And that, you know, some enchanted evening across the room, you know, whoosh, love at first sight. And, and this is what we hold up and aspire to. And the idea that this set of parents here and this set of parents here arranged for reasons of power or money or, or uh, level of society, whatever else, to marry this daughter, to marry this son uh, together, and that they had no say in it, it just to us seems strange and foreign, and we really wouldn't want to have it that way. But again, to go back to Fiddler on the Roof, remember what happened there? You know, do you love me? You know, they had had an arranged marriage, and they had learned to love each other. That's what love really is. It's learning to love each other because we have decided to do that. It's a choice. You don't fall in love across some, you know, a room, a crowded room in some enchanted evening. You may fall into infatu infatuation, but you don't fall into love. Uh, keep being reminded, as you are certainly too, about the radio preacher who says, I love all of you out there in radio land, especially if you send me a good contribution, you know. <laughs> He doesn't love me because he doesn't even know I'm listening. He doesn't know me from, you know, somebody living in central China. That's not love. You know, love is where you know who this other person is and you're committed to them anyway. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, at least that's true on part of the wife and the husband. Why, of course, they have reasons to love their wives. <laughs> <laughs> I'm well trained. No. No, that's not true. Shechem's unregenerate nature is clearly evident here. Notice the verbs in the passage in verse 2, if you will. These verbs de demonstrate a careless nature in this young man's heart. It says he took her as if she were a thing. An object, he took her to possess her. And then secondly, it says that he lay with her. And, and the verb here, shakab, is virtually every time in Scripture used to refer to an, an illicit sexual relationship. And then even worse, the third verb used here, he forced her, is the verb ana, which is used indicating that force was used to afflict or to violate or to humble. And in some translations in this passage, it says he humbled her. Not a way to win a girl's heart. Now, whatever was Dinah's impropriety here, the blame for the violence done to her and to her family was wholly in Shechem's hands and upon him. He apparently felt that what he had done was nothing out of the ordinary. I mean, the way the passage goes on, he's very flippant about the whole thing. He probably felt that Dinah and her family should be honored. After all, I'm prince. And, and they should be happy that I'm attracted to their daughter. After all, who are they? They're foreigners in the land. 
and I'm the prince, I'm going to rule this city one day. They ought to be delighted at what I have done, that, what, that I want her. Uh, if he did have any qualms about the violence that he had perpetrated here, he apparently believed that all would be forgiven and forgotten because of his application for marriage. Oh, well, you want to marry her? Well, then we'll forget all this thing that transpired here. Now, that might have worked had she been a Canaanite. Maybe that was acceptable practice amongst the Canaanites, even though it seems a little unlikely. But at least it would probably have been tolerable. But in spite of their failings, you know, whatever fault we can put at the feet of Jacob, and later of his two sons in this passage, they still lived by a higher moral standard than did the Canaanites. We have to always remind ourselves that whatever we read about here that happens to the lives of God's people, it's not far from our door. If we don't fill our hearts with the word of God and our lips with praise and prayer, then the things that have happened to these men and women of God can happen to us. We have to realize the enemy is very strong. I mean, there were, we sing f flippant songs sometimes about Satan. We sing these little choruses about, you know, f casting out the devil, throwing him away, you know, shouting some phrase at him, uh, failing to realize he's a very, very powerful enemy. But our God is far greater, of course. But that requires us to walk in the strength of our God. And we try to deal with the enemy in our own strength and we are going to be snuffed. Shechem should have thought about something here. He should have spent a little time and contemplated the name of this girl. Her name is Dinah. Judgment. Why is she called Judgment? Well, he will find out. And he will never again perpetrate an act of violence on anyone else because it will come back on him and his whole kingdom and it will be stuffed out. That's what the rest of the passage is, chapter is about and uh, we'll begin to look at that next Sunday and then I think the two Sundays after that there is no Sunday school so next week we'll look a little bit further and then we'll complete the story in January.